And after you've marked song number 674, I would invite you to keep your Bible open to that passage that was read a moment ago in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and following, that will be a passage upon which we'll focus some attention here in just a few moments for a little while tonight. It's been a glorious day in so many ways. We've been so richly blessed. You and I have had the privilege, yea, to, earlier today for many of us to assemble and to meet, to offer worship unto God. And now He's seen fit to allow us to gather again in His name at this place. I might suggest that as you and I think about the Lord's Supper as we reflected on during the sermon this morning, tonight we're going to talk about the Law of Moses. And in particular, a lesson I've entitled, The Disposition of the Law of Moses and of the Ten Commandments. This introductory slide will perhaps motivate some consideration, and I've tried to state it to direct our thoughts in the following way. To many people, the Bible is a confusing book. After all, it's rather sizable. As you take a look at it, there's a lot of books within it, some 66, as you and I know. And as you reflect upon them, it's clear that there's a great deal of distinction. To read the book of Acts, that's very different reading than, say, the book of Leviticus. And neither one of them is very much like Psalms. And so for those who perhaps do not have the degree of knowledge or experience that you and I have, the Bible may seem very confusing and very unwieldy. It is for that reason, the second comma. What rules, what commandments, what specific legislation does God expect His individuals, the people on earth, to follow? Again, as you look at the Bible, it's a rather large book, at least by comparison to many. Tonight, I hope you and I can perhaps give that some thought. Maybe there's more behind it than at the surface may appear to be the case. No wonder in light of that, I would ask you to note this. If God expects us to keep all of the Bible, then clearly there's some things that have to be seen differently than what you and I are currently doing. But not only that, if He does not expect us to keep all of it, how has He told us which ones He wants to keep and which parts are not? As you and I study that tonight, I think we'll be reminded not only of the grandeur of the law of Moses, but also the details of the, of the Ten Commandments. In particular, let's close that slide this way. Speaking of the Ten Commandments, isn't it true that there's a great deal of emphasis in many ways and in many places on those? You may have even seen individuals who have statements, lawn markers, if you please, in their yard, encouraging reflection on the Ten Commandments. Maybe there are places of business that you may visit, and as you patronize them, maybe on the wall you'll see the Ten Commandments. To many people, it may seem a shocking thing that anybody would really believe that those aren't worthwhile and that they shouldn't be kept today. Well, what do you and I think about it? What does the Bible teach about it? Are we under the Ten Commandments today? If we're not, how do we properly view this? And how should we look upon those Ten Commandments? The first part of the lesson leads us into it in the following way. I've entitled it simply the Law of Moses. Now that phrase is actually a biblical phrase. Now it's not as though Moses came up with it, and it's not as though Moses authored it. It's as though Moses wrote it down. In fact, 22 times in the Bible, the phrase, the Law of Moses, appears. 
It really is a biblical phrase, and it's a biblical way to refer to a particular set of laws. Let's rehearse the history so that we see how Moses entered into this. You and I remember that God gave Abraham a dramatic promise. All nations of the earth will be blessed through you, Genesis twenty-two eighteen. You'll notice, though, that Abraham had a grandson whose name was Jacob. And the time came that Jacob went into Egypt. He and his family found themselves in a very challenging time of famine and dearth. But you remember that Joseph had already been elevated to prominence in Egypt, and so Jacob and the other family members went off into Egypt where there they could be cared for, provided for, and protected. And sure enough, Joseph did that in that sweet land of Goshen. But there arose a king that didn't know Joseph, Exodus 1.8. That is to say, there arose a king who became fearful of the Israelites and who in fact was fearful that they might side with the enemies in war. And therefore they subjugated the Israelites to hard labor, slavery, bondage. And there they stayed for a few hundred years. During the course of that time, of course, they ultimately came to realize their station. They cried unto God, Exodus 2.25, and God heard their cries. And the next chapter opens with him selecting a man named Moses at a place called a burning bush. And there he said, you go and bring my people out of Egypt. And of course, over the next few chapters, God brought plagues, ten of them upon the Egyptian nation, And ultimately, even the Pharaoh drove them out, encouraged them to leave. And finally, here was God's people, at least initially somewhat free from Egypt, but the Egyptians pursued them. And at the Red Sea, a momentous deliverance took place. With the Egyptians pursuing them from behind and this body of water before them, God gave instruction to hold out that rod over the water, and so it was that the water parted and they passed through on dry land. That same water through which they had passed safely came over on the Egyptians and drowned them, of course. But at this point, that people was finally free from Egypt. They began to wander and to travel toward a land of promise. Fifty days later, they came to a mountain. A mount known as Mount Horeb, otherwise known as Mount Sinai. And as they encamped around this mount... God called Moses up to that mount, and they were camped there for many, many days. And God gave to Moses a set of laws, a set of regulations, a set of statutes. And they not only involve religious exercise, they also involve civil obligation. That set of laws we call the law of Moses. Beginning in Exodus chapter 20, we read about those laws, and we appreciate the specificity of them. And as you and I come near the bottom of that slide, this might be a powerful time to make this observation. Who were subject to this law of Moses? Who did God expect to keep it? Who were the people that God intended to not only observe it, but in fact to understand all the features of it? Would you turn with me to Deuteronomy? The clearest statement anywhere in the Bible that I know of is found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And it is on that occasion that we read the following words. And please notice, as it refers to the law of Moses, the statements are very clear indeed. I'll begin reading in verse 2. 
the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I, Moses said, stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for ye were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount. Did you notice what it was that was asserted? As God through Moses made this statement, He said, The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers. Abraham was never under this law. Isaac was never under this law. Who was under it? The people, the text says, who came out of Egypt, who were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob. They're the only people on earth who have ever been under this law. Now holding that thought in mind, you close that slide with me. And appreciate then that this law of Moses, more things ought to be said. And this next slide begins like this. During the course of Old Testament history, we appreciate that this people, these who came out of Egypt, these who were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, they of course had lots of descendants as the years went by. And as that law of Moses also detailed, those descendants were subject to this law God expected them to maintain and keep it. But isn't it fair to make these observations? That law was only given to those people. That is to say, to those who were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob. Not a Gentile that has ever lived has been under the law of Moses. A Gentile can neither keep it nor break it. They've never been under it. It wasn't given to us. It was only given to them. Now that idea is a rather critical one as you reflect on how Paul explained that in Romans 2. In Romans 2 verses 14 and 15, even the inspired apostle asserted that these which have not the law, he was talking about the Gentiles, they were never under it, Paul said. And isn't it so that of course today you and I appreciate our station as Gentiles, at least in the biblical discussion, we have never been under the law of Moses. None of us have. At that point, though, doesn't it lead to many additional questions and observations? This law of Moses, then, that occupies such a large part of the Bible. What purpose, then, does it have and what purpose did it serve? The next slide will take us into that discussion like this. And why don't we discuss it under the heading of the fate of it? What happened to the law of Moses? If it was true that that law, again, was never given to any Gentile over the course of years, what happened to it? Let's begin by this rather powerful observation. And many, I suppose, at least it seems by as a result of the observations that I have been able to make, many are unaware of this fact. The God of heaven never intended the law of Moses to be permanent. He never intended it to last perpetually till the end of time. He never intended it to, in fact, be permanent in that regard. In fact, could I call to your attention, within the very law of Moses itself, Jeremiah chapter 31 rings with these words. God through Jeremiah pointed it out in the following way. Chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, God said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, 
that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And I'll pause at that point to note this. Did you highlight that within the very law of Moses itself, God says, there is coming a time and there's coming a day when I will give a new covenant. It won't be like the covenant that I made at Mount Sinai. Now notice, he's clearly talking about the law of Moses. The new covenant I give will not be like that one. And this new covenant of which he speaks in verse number 31, did you notice? It says, I will make. At some point in the future, from the time that passage was stated, God had made promise that He would put in place a new covenant. And it would be one that would be more powerful, more universal, more far-reaching. And of course, you and I know much from the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus Christ about that. One more thought, though, on that slide might be, if it was true, that that law of Moses was never intended by God to be permanent, one might ask, so when did God anticipate that it would cease to be relevant? When would it cease to be law that should be kept? That is to say, when would it be superseded? That's a great question. Haven't you often wondered, as those Jews in the Old Testament in the midst of a verse like that one, don't you know they surely must have wondered, so when will this law be replaced? When will this new law come into being? May I be so blunt as to say, the new law would come into being when the old law had fulfilled its purpose. When the old law had finished doing whatever God anticipated that it would do, it would be replaced. And so it was. You and I have these unforgettable words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, in fact, near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. What law? The law of Moses. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. For I say unto you, not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus said that law will remain until it is fulfilled. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy it. I didn't come to, in essence, set it aside before it, in fact, accomplished that for which God intended it. But rather, He said it would be fulfilled. And isn't that a marvelous thought? It is to that I might ask you to notice Paul's discussion of this point in 2 Corinthians 3. In fact, verses 5 and following of that chapter, Paul highlighted the nature of the old law of Moses. And he, in fact, described it in a very vivid and dramatic way like this. When Moses came down from the mount, his face shone. And you and I remember that individuals looking upon the face of Moses were a bit afraid of him. He had been with God for those previous days, and his face shone in light of his presence before the infinite God of heaven. 
Paul uses that point to say this. In the same way that Moses had to veil his face when he came down from the mount, that law that he brought down from the mount was beginning to fade and to wane from the moment he gave it. That's always, I thought, had been an interesting point. That law was beginning to fade from the day God gave it. God didn't intend it to last permanently. He intended it to last only a certain amount of time. And when, of course, it was fulfilled, it'd be replaced. No wonder near the bottom of that slide, Jesus made another statement in John 10, 35. A statement that reads as direct and as pointed as this. The Scripture cannot be broken. Now, I suppose you and I have often been tempted to apply the principle of that to the New Testament. The context, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament. The Scripture, which was, of course, the Scripture they had available to them at that time, He says it cannot be broken. That means it cannot be annulled. It cannot be abrogated. All that it can happen to it is to be fulfilled. Now, you and I know our Lord filled it full when He died at the cross. Our Lord, in fact, completed and fulfilled all of it. And not only that, He superseded it by putting in place a grander, greater, more perfect law than He yet. But surely it's fair to say, the old law did have a marvelous purpose. The law was our schoolmaster, Paul said, to bring us to Christ. That famous refrain of Galatians 3.24 as you ponder the nature of that statement, in fact, all of Galatians 3 is a reflection on the law of Moses, its purpose, its place, and what it was intended to accomplish. And in the midst of it, Paul said, Don't you know that law was our tutor to bring us to Christ? Every bit of it pointed to Jesus. The sacrifices, the nature of the feasts and festivals, all of them found their fulfillment ultimately in the coming of the Son of God and that which He brought into reality, the marvelous kingdom that He bought with His blood. Surely, as we think about that statement in Galatians 3, the very next verse quickly says, not only should we appreciate then that that law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but the next verse says, but when the faith has come, faith is the gospel. When it's come, he says, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. And so today, there isn't a soul alive that's under the law of Moses. There's not a single human being on earth that answers to God by virtue of the law of Moses. That law, though great at the time and though needful and a part of God's plan, it has been fulfilled, leading me to make those statements at the bottom. When Jesus said that He came to fulfill it, no wonder these, this next slide continues that discussion by pointing out this. The New Testament is filled with references that remind you and me about the fact that this law of Moses has been fulfilled and has been set aside. Why don't we begin with this one in Hebrews chapter 8. I read just a moment ago from Jeremiah 31. That passage again which said, From God I will put a new covenant, one that I'll write in their hearts. And it'll be a new covenant. Well, notice what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 8. It is a fantastic presentation. Beginning in verse number 6 it reads, 
But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Let me interject this statement. If the law of Moses had been perfect, if the law of Moses had had, had, had no flaws, no shortcomings, there would never have been a need for the gospel. But yet the Hebrew writer says it was not faultless. And so verse 8 now reads like this. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And we all noticed what happened. The Hebrew writer quoted practically verbatim from Jeremiah 31. That very passage we read earlier and said, This is the fulfillment of it. That old law of Moses was faulted. And God has replaced it and put in place a new covenant. Let's add to that one more thought. That new, that old covenant, you and I noticed, certainly had some shortcomings. One most notable thing, there was no forgiveness, literally, to be thoroughly and ultimately appreciated underneath it. I say that because that's what Paul said. In Acts chapter 13... Would you note with me verses 38 and 39? On the first missionary journey as Paul was preaching on that location, he rather dramatically described the law of Moses in these words. Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses." You and I almost recoil in beautiful reflection. Paul told those individuals, Don't you know you could never be justified beneath that law of Moses? And yet by way of this man, namely Jesus, you can be. There was no ultimate and final forgiveness of sins beneath that law. Surely today, in our modern Christian era, We're so honored and thankful to be able to be a part of this kingdom of God, one serving Him in the new covenant. In Colossians chapter 2, the lesson text that Brother Dennis read earlier in our hearing tonight, although you heard him read that then, may I invite you to consider it again. In Colossians 2, beginning in verse number 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. May you and I never think that's too abstract. We might ask, what is this handwriting of ordinances in verse 14? Whatever is under discussion, Paul said this was nailed to the cross. It was taken out of the way. Whatever that's referring to, it is not a matter that God expects men to keep today. 
Now, he didn't leave us any wonderment about what that refers to. The whole context concerns the law, but in case we wonder, look at verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. Question, what law lifted high in elevation the Sabbath days, the holy days, the feasts, the festivals, the moons? It was the law of Moses. Paul now said, don't ever let anybody judge you as needful for keeping those things. They were nailed to the cross. They were taken out of the way. They have been forever removed as a binding arrangement from God to man. The law of Moses, you see, fulfilled its purpose. It brought us to Christ, and now our study of it will have a different thrust completely. You'll notice... In Ephesians 2.14, Paul describes this from another vantage point. The strength of this passage is so direct, it's so profound. Listen as I read beginning in Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition that was between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, containing in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Paul here identified this law of Moses is such that it had been abolished. I would call to your attention the definition of that word. It literally in the Greek means to bring to naught. It means to put an end to, to cause to cease, to annul. Paul says that law of Moses is such that it has been abolished. And Paul wrote that again to the church in Colossae around the middle of the first century. That old law, as far as a binding arrangement, it was no more. Now, as you and I close that slide, maybe this is the time then to reflect on that matter we raised early in the lesson. The law of Moses was an extensive set of laws and arrangements. The books of Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy list various and sundry laws and statutes and regulations, in fact, totaling well over 600. God expected the Israelites to keep them, to in fact appreciate them, and to always be faithful to them. But contained in that number was the so-called Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make unto thee no graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. I know you and I have often seen them, and they were a vital and necessary part of that law of Moses. They occupied a very critical place, to be sure. But in light of our discussion this evening, we've learned a rather valiant point. Inasmuch as the law of Moses has been nailed to the cross, inasmuch as it has been abolished, Inasmuch as it has been fulfilled, and inasmuch as no human being is underneath it today as far as binding law, that means nobody, including you or me, 
serves underneath the Ten Commandments today either. Those Ten Commandments perhaps could well then be summarized or at least some rather critical observations made, and that's my attempt on this next slide. When you and I think about the law of Moses and these Ten Commandments, doesn't it follow that these are the matters of force? Number one, the law of Moses, again, is not the law from God under which anybody serves today. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, He said, Go into all the world and preach, not the law of Moses, but preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And Paul dramatically marched throughout the Roman Empire in attempting to show that the law of Moses, though it was proper in its time, now there was a better covenant, a superior covenant. To that we might add, Paul's resounding preaching in Romans chapter 1. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul thus referred to the gospel, saying, It is God's power to save, not the law of Moses. Point number two is this one. What we've said tonight should not cause us to think there's never any reason to study the old law of Moses. Although it's not the law beneath which we serve today, it still is useful to understand it. It still is useful to appreciate many of its precepts for the following observations. In Romans 15.4, Paul said, "...whatsoever things were written aforetime," that's the law of Moses, "...it was written for our learning." that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And so it is that law contains principles. It contains viewpoints that aid us to appreciate the God that we do serve. And oh, how useful it is, especially as you notice point number three. There are major sections of the New Testament that you and I will never fully appreciate if we aren't at least somewhat a student of the old law of Moses. For example, I've listed six particulars. The book of Matthew. Were you aware of the fact that 55 times in the book of Matthew, 55 times in 28 chapters, the inspired writer says, as it is written in the law. So if you and I don't at least have some understanding of the old law of Moses, we will have a difficult time appreciating those passages that borrow from that idea and use it to teach some dramatic gospel truth. And yet Matthew does that over and over again. Or as we come to the book of Acts, again in 28 chapters, this time we see on many occasions various sermons from those early first century gospel preachers like Peter and Paul and Stephen. And many times those sermons either allude to, referred to, or quote from the law of Moses. If you and I, again, don't understand that law or at least appreciate some of its bases, we will struggle to fully appreciate the book of Acts. Example number three, what about the book of Galatians? 
It only has six chapters. But the theme and thrust of the book of Galatians was to embed in the hearts and minds of those first century Christians in Galatia the fact that the old law has been superseded and a better law has been put in place. That idea is seen in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, and in chapter 6. In fact, when Paul discusses circumcision in Galatians 6, if we aren't aware of the Old Testament teaching of it, we will miss much of the last chapter of Galatians. For the fourth example, the book of Colossians, the very place our lesson has been centered to nine. Colossians only has four chapters. And yet in that four-chapter book, we appreciate that again on many occasions, Paul wrestles with some false teaching that had made its way into Colossae. And among those false teachings, especially in chapter 2, they had a misapprehension of the law of Moses. Paul corrected that. But if you and I weren't aware of that law, we'd miss some great teaching in Colossians. Example number five. And maybe I've saved the two strongest ones to last. The book of Hebrews has many times been called the gem, G-E-M of the Bible. You'll never understand Hebrews unless you have an appreciation for the Old Testament. For it shows the superseding brilliance of the gospel, the superseding brilliance of Jesus Christ over against Moses, over against the law, over against the angels of the Old Testament. So if one is not aware of all of those things in the Old Testament, Hebrews will never ascend to the height that God would wish it to ascend in our understanding. Revelation has 22 chapters. The book of Revelation, as you and I noted on a Wednesday night several weeks ago, well over 200 times, John the Revelator refers or quotes from the Old Testament. How will we ever understand Revelation as we should if we don't at least have a passing appreciation of the Old Testament, including the law of Moses, seeing the arguments that are being made and the statements that are being presented? As we close that slide, let's conclude our lesson like this. We've cast a spotlight tonight on the law of Moses and in particular on the Ten Commandments. Our conclusions lead us to say this. Is the law of Moses binding on anybody today? No. Are the Ten Commandments binding on anybody today? No. They're a part of that law that was nailed to the cross. They're a part of that law that Christ took out of the way being abolished. We have learned, though, that it's still valuable to study it. It's still valuable to appreciate it for the reasons we noted just a moment ago. And so it is. That old law was replaced by a better one. And aren't you thankful for the law of Christ? There's no doubt that law of Moses was great because God designed it. And God doesn't make mistakes. But He intended that law to last for only a protracted period of time. And when it was fulfilled, He Himself declared that He put in place a better law, a superior one, and that He has done. When you and I turn to the 27 New Testament books, we do find on many occasions that things similar to the law of Moses and in particular the Ten Commandments sometimes can be found. Today, you and I don't murder anybody. Not because the Ten Commandments tells us not to, but because Jesus tells us not to. We're under a different law. 
Today we don't lie, not because Moses said not to, but because Jesus says not to. And we don't commit adultery, not because Moses said not to, but because Jesus says not to. The point is, many of those laws we do find in one way or another in the New Testament, but we keep them because they're in the New Testament, not because they were in the Old. I hope that our study tonight has maybe cleared up misunderstandings or at least settled in our heart the place of the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. It might be that someone in this audience is such that your life is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be that your life is not covered in the blood of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 still tells us, For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Are you righteous before God? May I say if you are, it's only because of the blood of Christ. If you're not, that blood you've got to contact. You do that initially as you respond to the gospel's call of invitation. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. And in so doing, His blood will wash your sins away and you will be elevated to the place of a child of God by faith. Live faithfully till death. Revelation 2.10 promises a home in heaven if you do. And therefore, if you have not been faithful, though once a faithful Christian, why not make it right tonight? Jesus still pleads with you. He implores you. He begs you. He wants you to be faithful at His side. A citizen in His kingdom, a soldier in His army. If you are not a faithful member of His kingdom tonight, why don't you ask brethren to pray to God for you? Why don't you make repentance and confession, that which we would evidence tonight, and God has promised to forgive you of those things, and you'll be able to live beneath the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully again. If we could be of assistance, of help to anyone, we would love to do that and do it now while together we stand and sing the chosen song.